But we continue on through our sermon series through 1 Samuel this morning. My sermon entitled, The Glory Has Departed. Now, when we hear the word Philistine or Philistine, many of us likely think of one particular Philistine who was particularly tall and who got in a fight with a young boy who was armed with only a sling and a few stones. Even though that Philistine, Goliath, is etched in our memories, we need to understand that the the Philistines as a whole have a much more significant impact on the Israelites than just this one particular warrior and this one particular story. The the Philistines arrived in, in the southwestern region of Canaan around 1200 B.C. They're believed to be part of a group of people called the Sea People, who migrated in large numbers from islands and coastlands in the Aegean Sea, including the island of Crete. They settled in the the coastal plains, and they established a unified Philistine society consisting of five major cities. And you'll recognize these cities' names from Bible stories. Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. Each of those cities was governed by a lord or a king. And for the next two centuries, they would play a significant role in Old Testament history. They began to dominate the area around the middle of the 11th century, uh, and they were constantly hostile and in hostilities with the Israelites. This ongoing conflict, which it seemed neither could achieve a decisive victory in, it is the historical context of parts of Judges, of all of 1 Samuel and much of 2 Samuel. Uh, The Philistines posed a threat to Israel, the greatest threat that they had seen since they entered the promised land. Now, during the time of the judges, for the most part, Israel faced uh, oppression and opposition from nomadic groups who weren't really interested in permanent conquest or building an empire. And yet the Philistines, uh, the Israelites with them, were confronted with a group of people who are technologically advanced in terms of their weapons, and they posed a significant threat. Now, along with the Philistines, the Ark of the Covenant dominates chapters 4 through 6 of 1 Samuel. In our passage today, the Ark is mentioned 12 times. Where the Ark is and the impact it has is really the focus of today's passage as Israel's most important religious and sacred relic, the ark symbolized the presence of God with his covenant people. The ark represented Israel's relationship with their covenant Lord. Israel was called to be faithful covenant partners who would worship their covenant Lord with genuine love and with obedient faith. But as we know, Israel failed to do so. And in particular, in the time of 1 Samuel, not only did the people fail to do so, but Israel's leaders failed to do so. And so the ark is seen as a symbolic picture of the Hebrews. How it goes is how the nation goes. Now, the setting of today's narrative is one that sees pagan Philistinian aggressors confronting the unfaithful Israelite nation on the field of battle. So let's start there. The first battle, verses 1 and 2. Now, in the book of Leviticus, God addresses his people. He addresses the Israelites. 
and he explains to them how the covenant that he has made is going to function. If Israel would walk in God's statutes and observe God's commandments and do them, then he would bless them in many ways. However, if they were unfaithful and disobedient, God would judge them and discipline them. Listen to Leviticus 26, 14 through 17. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. The results from this first battle are an outcome that should cause no surprise to those people who are aware of God's covenant, are aware of God's warning to Israel, uh, to Israel and aware of Israel's current unfaithfulness to their covenant Lord. Archaeologists are confident that the battle site talked about in this passage lies about seven and a half miles east of modern-day Tel Aviv. Now, that location is about 20 miles from Shiloh. Shiloh, if you recall, is where the Ark of the Covenant was housed in the tabernacle, in the sanctuary. Now, we heard this morning the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. This first battle results in a decisive loss for the Israelites. And that left them questioning what had happened. Israel regroups, verses 3 and 4. The leaders of Israel, representatives of God's chosen people, anticipated expected victory over these pagan idol worshipers, these Philistines. And their defeat left them asking, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now, this is the right question to ask. This is the right question, first of all, because it acknowledges that God is sovereign. The leaders of Israel realized that ultimately, it was God who had defeated them. But this was also the right question to ask because they were well aware of the covenant. And their mind was likely on the covenant blessings that are promised in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 26 through chapter, verses 6 through 8. I will give you peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmless beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. They were expecting these blessings, particularly these military blessings. But as we see, they didn't receive them. And so in that sense, it was the right question to ask. Now, unfortunately, though they asked the right question, they came up with the wrong answer. 
Now, before we get to that, I want us to make an application this morning, an application in regards to asking the right questions and getting the right answers, specifically when life doesn't go our way, specifically in times of trial and tribulation and and suffering. The questions, God, what are you doing in my suffering? God, why has this happened to me? When they are asked in faith, they are the right questions to ask. We have learned, if you recall, as we've studied the Psalms of Lament over the summers, and as we will do so, Lord willing, this coming summer, we've learned that it is appropriate and indeed helpful to ask God questions about our suffering, provided we ask in faith. Now, I'm not going to focus this morning on asking the right question. I want to focus on getting the right answer. We will see in a minute that even though Israel asked the right question, they arrived at the wrong answer. So how do we arrive at the right answer once we have asked in faith the right question about our suffering, about our trials, about our tribulations? I think Puritan John Bunyan, the famous author of Pilgrim's Progress, is helpful here. In his work entitled The Saint's Knowledge of Christ's Love, Bunyan demonstrates that in difficult times, in times of suffering, God's love still goes out to his people. This work is a treatise on Ephesians 3, 17, 19, and it focuses on Paul's prayer that the Ephesians may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If we are to answer our questions about our suffering correctly, we must understand that God loves us even when he allows us to suffer. Now, because it is a difficult thing to to hold on both to the love of God and the sovereignty of God in the midst of suffering and trials, Bunyan insists the following. He says, He then that is able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height of God's love must be a good expositor of providences and must see the way and the workings of God by them. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to land on the right answer to our questions in regards to our suffering, we must be good expositors of the providence of God. Now, what is an expositor? An expositor is someone who explains and interprets in order to better understand the meaning and the application of something. I endeavor to be an expositor of Scripture when I'm up here. Thus, a good expositor of the providence of God is someone who would be adept at explaining and interpreting God's sovereignty and providence in all situations. They would understand how God's upholding, how his directing, how his governing of all things, especially the suffering we experience, he would understand that, a good expositor of the providences of God. That person can arrive at the right answers to the right questions about the difficulties in life. 
So if you're tracking with me this morning, you have another question. Pastor Jude, how do I become a good expositor of the providences of God? Now, there are many answers to that question. I'm going to give you two. First, you need to study and learn about God's providence and his sovereignty. You need to read your word and see what it says about those things. And then you need to read good books and listen to good sermons or lectures that help you to interpret and understand what the Bible teaches about God's sovereignty, about God's providence, about his ruling over all things. It's imperative we understand that. I'll recommend a couple books to you this morning. The Sovereignty of God by A.W. Pink. Does God Control Everything by R.C. Sproul. Divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility by D.A. Carson. Providence by John Piper. And The Doctrine of God by John Frame. We need to study and learn about sovereignty and providence if we are going to be good expositors of those things. The second thing you can do to become a good expositor of the providences of God is to spend time with those who are good expositors of the providence of God. We know that he who walks with the wise grows wise. I suggest to you that he who walks with those who are good expositors of the providence of God will become a good expositor of the providence of God. And let me give you a hint so you can find those people. Most of the good expositors of providence, most of them, not all of them, but most of them, have gray hair. Most of them are closer to the finish line than they are to the starting line. God, uh, good expositors of God's providence, particularly hard providences, have most often been revealed to me when I speak to our senior members, to the elderly people in our congregation. They are brothers and sisters who have faithfully persevered the storms of life. They have seen God working all things for good for those who love them. And they have learned to lean into both the love and sovereignty of God. Brothers and sisters, by studying and learning from God's word and by spending time with faithful believers who have experience in the trials of life and learning from them, we can become good expositors of the providence of God so that when we ask the right questions about suffering, we can get to the right answers. That's one thing the Israelites couldn't do. The Israelites asked a good question when they experienced defeat at the hands of the Philistines. But their answer left much to be desired. To the question, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines, they should have arrived at this answer. The Lord defeated us today because we have been unfaithful and we have been disobedient and our leaders are evil. We must repent and return to the Lord. That was the right answer to the question. However, we see in their actions that they think the reason God defeated them is because they didn't bring the ark into battle with them. Now, there's some precedence for them arriving at this conclusion. We read in Numbers 10.35, And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, 
Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. You see, the ark of the covenant was connected to the presence of the Lord, and God was Israel's divine warrior. However, the the ark wasn't a good luck charm. It wasn't a religious talisman that God's people could use to leverage God so that he would accomplish what they wanted him to accomplish. They should have repented. They should have turned from their unfaithful and disobedient ways. Instead, we read that the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. The mention of those two men's names, Hophni and Phinehas, should give us an indication of where this is going to go. The Ark arrives, verses 5 through 9. Archaeologists believe that there was about three kilometers separating the Israelite army from the Philistine army. Now, that's about the same distance as the crow flies from Westland Alliance Church to TD Waterhouse Stadium at Western. It's about three kilometers. Now, my childhood home was about one kilometer from the old stadium that wasn't far from TD Waterhouse. And I remember when they used to have concerts at that stadium. And from one kilometer away, I remember being able to hear the, the crowd cheering. I remember hearing the roar of the crowd on those nights that there were concert, uh, concerts. Now, three kilometers away, I've, I've never heard the roar of concert goers. I've never heard the cheers of a football crowd, even when they had the championship game there. I've never heard that from the church. But imagine, if you will, that over the course of the fall, you came to second service. And after second service, you walked out those front doors. And from that front foyer, just outside the front doors, you could hear the roar of a crowd from JW or from TD Waterhouse Stadium. That would be impressive. Now, when the Ark of the Covenant arrives in the, uh, Israel's camp, they cheer loud enough. So that the Philistine army, over three kilometers away, not only heard them, but were troubled by what they heard. The Israelites had been emboldened by the arrival of the ark, and they let the Philistines know about it. Now, the Philistines realized that the ark was in the Israelite camp, and they took that to mean that, the, that Israel's God, Yahweh, must therefore also be in the camp. And they had heard of Yahweh. They had heard of what he had done in Egypt, and they were therefore initially fearful. However, that fear quickly morphed into resolve, a resolve to fight the Israelites with all they had. Now, perhaps the Israelite army was thinking about Joshua and Jericho. The, stereo, the story of Joshua and Jericho is, is one in which the presence of the ark with the army coupled with loud shouting, resulted in a great victory for Israel. However, unlike the Jericho story, where God was with his people, and where God had commanded them to carry the ark with the army, and where he had commanded them to yell at appropriate times, this regrouping 
And this response of Israel to their early defeat generates not a victory, but an even worse result. The second battle, verse 10 and 11. There are three explicit negative outcomes in regards to the Israelites and to their second battle against the Philistines. We read, so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. There is a calamitous loss of life in this battle, 30,000 soldiers. The first battle saw 4,000 Jewish combatants killed, but now 30,000 soldiers die significantly worse of an outcome. Secondly, the, the ark of God is captured by pagans, by the Philistines. And third, as prophesied, the sons of Eli are both killed on the same day. Now, those who do not recognize the rule and reign of God will eventually face judgment. And in this case, there was a battle between two nations that were rebelling against the one true God. Not one nation, but two nations rebelling against the one true God. One was Philistine, the arch nemesis of God's people. But the other rebellious nation was Israel. And their leaders were wicked men. Now in the New Testament, the apostle Peter notes that judgment begins at the household of God. And we know that God will eventually judge Philistine, but he would first discipline his own people. An unfaithful nation led by wicked men are judged by God for forsaking the covenant. Israel had been negligent in the worship of God. Nothing changed simply because they employed the ark as some sort of good luck charm, a token whereby they might be able to win. There is a big difference between thou art worthy and thou art useful. And the Israelites were trying to use God for their purposes as opposed to worship God for his greatness. Now the reverberations of this fateful battle would be heard in Shiloh. The report of the rout of Israel, verse 12 through 17. It was a little over 30 kilometers back to Shiloh, 30 kilometers from the sanctuary which usually housed the ark. And we don't know the details of all the survivors who made it back, but we do know the details of one. We read, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. The Benjamite messenger's appearance leaves no doubt about the sort of news he brings. He is a messenger of evil tidings. Grief and distress are often indicated in the Bible by actions such as tearing of one's garment and putting on sackcloth or throwing dust or ashes on one's head. Whatever the news was that this messenger has had, it wasn't good. Now, the drama of this moment is amplified by how the narrator releases the details. The details get increasingly bad. The man came, the messenger came from the battle and then the, man, the messenger fled from the battle and then all of Israel fled from the battle. And there was a great defeat, and your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And then the messenger reaches the pinnacle 
of the bad news. He completes his report with the most negative news item, the news that Eli himself would find most objectionable. The ark of God has been captured. Now, before we consider Eli's response to the report, let's pause a moment to reflect on the awesome sovereignty of God. Remember, through the man of God in chapter 2, God predicted his judgment against the house of Eli. And then remember in, in 2 Samuel, or in the third chapter, sorry, in 1 Samuel, the third chapter, we read of what God said to Samuel. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end the effectiveness and the extensiveness of God's sovereignty is seen in the fact that when it pleases him, God can predict and proclaim his plans, and then he can even use his enemies to bring about his purposes. And if God can recruit his enemies to do his will, who is free from his sovereignty? See, God is not just the sovereign ruler of Israel. He's the sovereign ruler of the universe. Psalm 33, 10 and 11 says, The Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Brothers and sisters, let us marvel with fearful reverence and joyful confidence that God is sovereign over all. His control extends across the natural world through all of creation. His control extends through human history and over every human that has ever lived. He is sovereign over human decisions and human sins and a human salvation. In awe, we should say with the writer of Lamentations, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? We conclude this morning considering the impact of the messenger's report. The results of the report, verses 18 through 22. War is a matter of life and death. And the results of the messenger's report are framed with life and death. The narrator takes pains to make it clear that of all the items of bad news that Eli both anticipated and ended up hearing, the loss of the ark was the most significant. The messenger announced the ark's capture, to which the narrator writes, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. At the news of the Philistines' appropriation of the ark, Eli reacts and his reaction causes him to fall over and break his neck and he dies. And what is followed by Eli's reaction, I believe, is the narrator explaining the significance of the ark being stolen. And he does so by relating it again to another death, but also 
to another life. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, upon hearing the news of the ark's capture, goes into labor. And she gives birth to a son, but she dies during childbirth. We have both life and death. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. And she said this because the ark of God had been captured. The glory has departed. The glory has departed Israel. What is the connection with the glory in the ark's capture? Well, as we looked at from the time of the Exodus, the ark had been intimately connected with the glory of God. It had been intimately connected with his manifest presence among his people. It had been intimately connected with all of his splendor and majesty. And it had been captured. The capture of the ark was symbolic of the glory of God departing from all of Israel. And in naming her son Ichabod, the wife of Phinehas shows great spiritual insight into what has happened. God's glory has departed. Now, God's glory refers to the awesome splendor of his presence. It is the magnificence and the worth and the loveliness and the grandeur of his many perfections brought to bear in and through his people by his presence. And it had departed. It had been with Israel in the Exodus. It had been with Israel in the conquest. It had been decreasingly with Israel in the time of the judges, but now it had departed. The unfaithfulness of God's people had been judged. And that's the story of the ark in chapter four of 1 Samuel. As we finish, let's ask one more question. How should this story of God's glory departing from God's people. How should that impact us today? Well, we begin by understanding that the glory of God, since the times of the New Testament, is centered on and found in God's Son, Jesus Christ. John 1.14 said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The awesome splendor of the presence of God resides in the Son of God, and it is found in him. It is no longer associated with an ark, with a tabernacle, or a temple. No, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, according to the author of Hebrews. And the Apostle Paul agrees, declaring in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is found in the face of Jesus Christ. The, the awesome splendor of God's presence, his magnificence, his worth, his loveliness, the grandeur of his many perfections is found in Jesus. However, in a similar way to the departure of God's glory from Israel, as described in today's passage, the glory of God departed from humanity as a result of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And yet, we know from Scripture that God desires to bring many people to himself. He desires to bring many people to the glory of his presence. And the way God brings people to glory is through the work 
of Jesus Christ, through the work we celebrated at the communion table this morning. People are brought to glory through the death of Jesus, where he paid the price for our sins, that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. God brings us to glory through the resurrection of Jesus, whereby he conquered death, and through which we might be able to live forever in God's presence in the glory of God. God brings people to glory when they believe in Jesus, when they submit to him as their Lord, when they entrust themselves to the salvation that he accomplished in his death and resurrection. Everyone here ought to seek God's glory this morning, and you ought to do it by believing in Jesus and seeking forgiveness through him. And brothers and sisters, we should rejoice. We should rejoice that God the Father, through God the Son, has made us, as the Apostle Peter described it, describes it, partakers of the glory of God, 1 Peter 5.1. We should rejoice, brothers and sisters, that God the Father one day will give us, again, as the Apostle Peter describes it, an unfading crown of glory, 1 Peter 5.4. We should rejoice, brothers and sisters, that the presence of God abides in us through, as Peter again describes, the spirit of glory. And brothers and sisters, that glory shall never depart from you because Jesus has promised he is with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And we pray, Father God, that you, by your spirit, would help us to apply it to our lives. Father God, help us to understand your sovereignty, your providence, and help us to rejoice in it and love it. And cause us by your spirit to grow and mature that we might be good expositors of your providence, particularly in the difficulties of life. And we thank you, Father God, for your glory. For your glory that you have made us partakers in through Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the glory that we will abide in forever because of all that Christ has done. Help us by your spirit to be grateful for that and to praise you because of it. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.